mind reflected upon my disgust this morning as I was watching a little bit of, of the news that was on TV as I was ironing clothes and trying to get ready for this morning and just, you know, just disgusted this morning over the arrogance of leaders that we have in really every realm of life and just the pride and always talking about themselves. And so I was just reflecting, there's going to come a day when every knee will bow and every ting, tongue will confess uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Jesus at that moment won't be arrogant or proud, but he will be honored as he should be. And, you know, there's, you know sometimes we may get a little uh, disillusioned with what we see in the life, you know, the news and everything. And we may uh, fuss and grumble and complain about our leaders, but just remember it's always been this way. David himself, the New Testament speaks of David being a man after God's own heart, and yet he himself was proud and arrogant and, and had his own skeletons in the closet that he tried to keep hidden and sexual sin. And, you know, it's always been that way, but praise the Lord, there's coming a day when we will stand before the God of all creation, and this sin that we deal with and all of this, the entanglements that come with it will be put to an end. Can I get an amen for that? If you're not hoping and longing for that day, there's something wrong with your walk with Jesus. But uh, if you want to take your Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to continue in our study, walking verse by verse through the book of Nehemiah. We spent uh, about five, six, seven weeks uh, in the cu- first couple of chapters. Now we're going to move into chapter 3 and deal with the entire chapter uh, this morning. And then next week, Lord willing, move on to chapter 4. But I, I wonder this morning, I'm going to throw a couple questions out to you and I want you to, to think about this. Don't answer out loud unless you just feel compelled and led by the Holy Spirit to do that this morning. If you speak in a certain tongue, please make sure it has an interpreter. That's a joke for our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. Uh, but think about this. On a typical Sunday, following the service, as you're going to small groups, perhaps as you're going to lunch after small groups, what is it that dominates your conversation? What is it that you talk about? What is it that is on your mind and that you speak with others about? What is it that dominates your conversation? And I mean, think about it. Have you thought about what, uh, or what have you thought about, or or what have you noticed other people talking about after church? I mean, I I know you're just like the rest of us. You hear conversations, you eavesdrop a little bit, you listen while you're walking through the halls. And so, what is it that dominates your conversation? What is it that dominates the conversation of other people on a typical Sunday morning? It's probably something like this, and this is true of any church I've ever been in. Your conversation is going to be like this. Well, that pastor this morning preached a pretty good sermon. That's rare around here, but sometimes you may say that. It may be something like this. I can't believe the pastor talked about money this morning. I can't believe he talked about that subject. I can't believe he said those words or that statement. Or maybe it's something like this. I wonder why Mrs. So-and-so wore that dress again. Or I guess we put it in the guise. I can't believe he came in here looking like that. Or better yet, I really felt like I worshipped and heard from the Lord today. That ought to be one of the conversations that we're having with ourselves. That I really sensed the Lord speaking into my heart today. I really felt like I caught a glimpse of His glory. That's our conversations on a typical Sunday. I bet if God were to review our service, and, and I firmly believe He does look and, and knows very intimately what's going on in our services and our meeting times, whatever they may be. And so His review of our Sunday service, I think, would be much different. He would probably say something like this. The nursery was led by Carolyn D. and Tiffany stayed after 
because she saw that there were two more children in the nursery this morning because of the guests that we had, they had. Jennifer was leading the children's ministry with Stephanie and Chris and Jonathan and Gloria and Heidi and Pat and Crystal teaching in the different areas. The greeters were Clyde and Ruthie and Rick and Josh and Jeanette, and they each had a smile on their face as they made everyone feel welcome. Nick led the students with Holly and Jeff and Wendy and Jack and Karen, Heather and Tim, all of them teaching the different classes. Tommy and Nancy and Shields, Mark, Jean, and Belle came to church prepared to teach and to be a blessing to those in their adult classes. Each member of the worship team did an outstanding job uh, focusing on my glory and leading the congregation to see my greatness. He say, I believe when the Lord looks down on our services, he sees every single thing and he makes sure he remembers every little thing that goes on in our service. He cares about how we serve. He cares about what we do. He cares about what we say. More than anything, he cares about the attitude that we have and what we do. So I hope you get this point this morning. God knows how vital every role is and he notices what everyone is doing. And he notices what everyone is not doing. This was the same with Nehemiah. It was the same with the people of Judah who rebuilt the walls and the gates in Jerusalem. And so if you've got your place there in Nehemiah chapter 3, we're not going to read the entire chapter, though I'm going to uh, allude to the entire chapter throughout this message. But I want to read the first couple verses, and then we're going to read uh, four or five verses at the end of the chapter. And once we start reading, you'll understand why. Chapter 3, verse 1. Nehemiah says, and then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built a sheep gate. They consecrated and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. Look down at verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. And after him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corn and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would take this very detailed chapter of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that you would help impress upon our hearts, that you would speak deep into our hearts and teach us about the good work of God that you're doing in us and, God, that you're doing through us. Lord, teach us how we, as individual members of this local body of Christ, have been gifted and equipped to serve and to serve others, thus serving you. And so, Lord, teach us of this good work this morning from the work led by Nehemiah and done by these Jews. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in chapters 1 and 2, we've seen that Nehemiah, at the height of power, at the height of influence there in Persia, remember he was the cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes, he was a student of Scripture. And so in his influential position, he was a student of Scripture who interpreted life in light of the Bible. He prayed for God to accomplish the purposes laid out there in the Word of God, and he took action to do what he could to be used of the Lord in answer to 
to his own prayers. He didn't use or he didn't rely upon his lofty position to become lazy spiritually. He was a student of the word. He was a prayer warrior. He believed God was going to use him to do something for his glory and for the betterment of his brethren. So the good hand of God was upon Nehemiah, the Bible tells us. And so this servant, we know, in chapter 2, travels to Jerusalem. And there in chapter 2, he begins to call upon the Jews to rise up and to rebuild the gates and the walls of the city. As we move into chapter 3, we see that it shows us the people's response to Nehemiah's call there in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And so in this chapter, it's organized around the rebuilding of the gates. And the reference to those who work next to them rebuilding the gates account for those who were rebuilding the walls. And so what we see in chapter 3 is a detailed list, a detailed account of everyone involved in rebuilding the gates and the walls of Jerusalem. We see in Nehemiah, personally, a model of valor. And this valor exemplified by him as a forward-looking Christ-likeness. You see, his life modeled. We can look at him and see he, or, or say he's a type of Christ, or uh, he had the personality or the characteristics of Jesus in his life. Nehemiah was a student of the Scriptures, I've said. He was a prayer warrior, as we've said. He was one who loved God. He was a man who loved the people of God, who sought the good of God's people, even at great risk to his own life. That's who Nehemiah was. He showed great courage and boldness, protecting God's people and trusting God through every situation. He was a man who lived for the high cause of God's kingdom. Nehemiah was not in this for his own glory. We see in chapters 4 and 5 that he didn't didn't even take advantage of some of the privileges that came with being the governor of this province or this area called Judah in the empire. He didn't take advantage of of those privileges. Instead, he always sought the betterment. Of others. So today, Christians ought to follow Nehemiah's footsteps. They should follow in his, his example of, of Christ likeness, of studying the Word of God and praying to the, word, to, the, to the Son of God and protecting others and even laying their own lives down in the good work of service to the Lord. And I want you to just think about that this morning. When you serve the Lord, it is a good service to God. Whatever it is you do in the local church, it is a good work that you're doing. It doesn't matter if you have a a service or a position that is out front like my position is. I mean, people see me. I'm on the website. You know, People call and they want to talk to the pastor. Uh, It it comes with privileges. There's a lot of things it comes with that you would be better off not having those, right? It comes with all the intangibles. And so sometimes it's better to be behind the scenes. But it doesn't matter what your position is. If your position is is to serve faithfully. And, 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 and weekly, just helping make dinner on a Wednesday afternoon so that we can have dinner on a Wednesday evening. That is a faithful and a very good service that's done for the Lord. It's a good work. So our service to God is a good work. In fact, it is a glorious work because we get to serve the good and the glorious King. It's also good and glorious because of how God brings together different people to achieve a different goal. If we were to take some time this morning and just look around, People from all different walks of life make up the local body of Christ. We should not be a a church of uniformity. We should be a church of unity, different people, different backgrounds, even some different beliefs. But we come together under one single banner, and that is the banner of Christ. So look at the screen. I'm going to make a couple statements here. 
in the work of God, the greatest accomplishments come from unity of purpose. When people of diverse backgrounds, interests, and abilities join together under a compelling vision. Success, success then is achieved not because we are all the same, but because our differences are put aside to work for a greater goal. So we can be successful when we put aside our differences and work toward a common goal. I mean, I've said it for for years that the church ought to look like the community that we're around. The church ought to be cross-generational, the older generation and the younger generation and everyone in between, people from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds. We should all be coming under one banner, the banner of Christ, with one mission, and that is the Great Commission. So Nehemiah Nehemiah 3 here shows us what this good work is looks like. And in it, I want to share with you six truths or six principles, and I'm going to try to do these as quickly as I can. First thing I want you to see here about this good work is that the good work of God is accomplished when God's people serve together. This good work of God is accomplished when God's people serve together. Think about what's going on here in Nehemiah, this project that Nehemiah is leading, rebuilding the walls and repairing the gates. This project was huge. This project was monumental. It it required all sorts of resources like wood and stone, mortar, bolts and bars for the gates, tools, and a lot of labor, a lot of elbow grease, my dad used to say. So as we learn in chapter 4, it also required armed guards for protection. They needed a security detail. There was no way, because of all of this work, for Nehemiah to rebuild the walls and restore the gates himself. He couldn't do it. He, even though God had placed it upon his heart, he couldn't accomplish it himself. He definitely could not finish the work in 52 days. The work was too great. However, by sharing the need, by casting the vision to the people and calling them to join him in this good work, Nehemiah was able to accomplish this task in record time. 52 days rebuilding the walls. So here in chapter 3, as we've read at the beginning, chapter 3 begins with Eliashib, the high priest, and his priestly brothers rising up to rebuild the sheep gate. Nehemiah here, in, in, in putting Elisha first, is showing us that the most important person in the city worked to rebuild the most important section of the wall, which was next to the most important building in the city, and that would have been the temple. Elisha co-labored with Jews from all walks of life. So here's this leader within the city. Here's this high priest, the religious leader of the people of God. And he's rolling his sleeves up. And he and his priestly brothers are going out and co-laboring with the Jews from all walks of life. The priests, the farmers, goldsmiths, perfume makers, residents of Jerusalem, residents of surrounding towns, the noble leaders and the commoners all came together to do the work. So the beauty of their unity is found in the refrain. As you read through chapter 3, what you see is this. Next to him, built. And next to them, built. And next to him, built. You see this refrain over and over and over again. People from all different walks of life, unified in this calling of God, this work of God, to do it together. The rebuilt wall was a testimony to the workers' interdependent partnership. They served together, following the example of the high priest. And so in the church today, we serve together in much the same way. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, speaking of the body of Christ, the church, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. See, Jesus is our high priest, and Jesus has set the example for us in life. We, his disciples, serve together. We make up his body. And this work of the gospel is a work in which we co-labor. It's the great commission that we co-labor in. Each of us has our own individual responsibilities. But those responsibilities work together to bring completion the whole. So we all do different things. We all have different objectives, we all have different tasks, we all have different duties, but all of those different duties work together for one common purpose, and that is to make disciples of all nations. That's what we do. We can't do this alone. The the, the Great Commission, the work of the, the gospel can't be done, can't be accomplished by one single person or a group of, a small group of people. See, there are no Lone Ranger Christians in the church. Therefore, the discipleship that God's called us to can't be relegated to the pastors. It can't be relegated to the pastors and the small group leaders if we wanted to expand it. No, it's the work that we all are to engage in. All of us carrying our load. All of us playing our part as we serve together in the good work of God. And when we do that, it will be accomplished. The second thing I want you to see in this is this. The good work of God requires organization. It requires organization. When you read chapter 3, you see that they were organized. Somebody had to put this together. The list itself is a very organized list. And so in addition to being an inspiring leader, Nehemiah was also a gifted administrator. He included in his book, 13 chapters here that we have, he included seven different detailed lists of names, locations, and responsibilities. You see, he understood the importance and the value of accurate records. We need to make sure that as a church we keep records and that we are organized for the work of the gospel. These lists then are not dull recitals of forgotten names or names that we can't pronounce today. That's one of the reasons we're not reading the entire chapter. Because I don't want you to see that I would mess up. I want you to think that I understand all of Hebrew and aced it in seminary. I want you to believe that about me. Be honest, it's probably easier to read it in Hebrew than to read the trans, uh, transliterated versions here that we have in English. Sometimes we look at these details in scriptures and we think, man, that's the dullest thing I've ever read. Why is it in there? I mean, it, we're reading chronologically through the Bible. Now, if you're still, on, still participating, you're still on track with us, we're in Deuteronomy. But we just went through two very difficult books, Leviticus, Leviticus and Numbers. And you get into some of those, uh, so-and-so begot so-and-so, or so-and-so is part of this clan, or so-and-so brought this to the altar or to the temple for a sacrifice. You can get lost in all of that. But the reason it's there is because it's valuable and it teaches us something. So these lists are not dull recitals. They preserve the story of heroic people who played their part in the community of faith. Reveal how different people from different walks of life join together for a common purpose. They teach us that every good work requires organization. I believe that perhaps in leadership, the greatest challenge is to keep everyone together and going down the same path. If, you, if you've led in a, in a corporation, if you've led in a nonprofit, if you've led in any capacity within the local church, you understand that we have a tendency to default to what's right in our own eyes, right? 
We, we have a tendency to, to move into what we think is right or, we, or what our heart's passion is rather than staying focused on what the overall objective is for the organization. Let's just talk about the church. And so as leaders, the hardest thing is to keep us moving in the same vein, in the same direction, with the same purpose. A lot of times, leadership feels like you're herding cats. Have you seen that commercial years ago? The guys are riding the horses. I think it was a Super Bowl commercial. And that's what leadership in the church a lot of times feels like. I missed an hour of sleep like you did this morning, so uh, bear with me on the speech. I've been up since 4.30, which is, in essence, 3.30. So if I pass out during the sermon, it's, that's the reason. But a lot of times, it's, leadership is like herding cats. So what do you do with cats? Well, I don't know what you do with cats because I don't really like cats. So let's talk about something else. But what do you do with people when it comes to organization? You've got, you got to organize them. You've got to put them in teams. You've got to give them a mission and a purpose and, and hold them to that. Because we're naturally going to default to what's right in our own eyes and what our passions are. And so each group and each person must know his or her job and work together toward the goal. But the reality is no one person can do all the work. And that is why we have, in our own church, that's why we have greeters. I can't do everything. The church can't ride, ride on my shoulders. It can't ride on the shoulders of our elders or our small group leaders or our deacons or, or anyone else. It has to ride on all of our shoulders. So that's why we have greeters who stand in the parking lot and greet people as they come in off the road, stand at the doors and shake hands with a smile on their face. That's why we have helpers at the children's check-in area to make sure that computer's doing what it should do and make sure they can get their child checked in properly. That's why we have singers on, on the stage leading us in worship because we need to be led in that and, and our hearts moved with our worship time. We need small group leaders who will teach the word of God and train up other leaders within our church. We need care group leaders in our small groups who minister to people's needs and pray with them. We need even secretaries to take the role in our small groups. Everything that we do is important. Organization enables the good work of God to be carried out. We organize in order to make sure that people feel welcome and comfortable so that they can hear the Word of God taught and thus be transformed. That's why we do what we do. So if you wonder, why, you, why have I been asked to stand out in the parking lot with a goofy green shirt and wave at people or help people find a parking spot? It's because we want them, as the moment they enter our campus, to feel welcomed and to have everything made, laid out before them so there's no questions, so they can come in here as a guest, sit down, hear the Word of God, and have their hearts spoken to. What we do, every single thing matters because it's all for one purpose. The third thing I want you to see of this passage is this. The good work of God is hard work. It's hard work. I mean, anyone who thinks the service of the Lord is in hard work hasn't served the Lord for very long. Sometimes people will joke in the church, and I know they're joking, but in every joke there's a little bit of truth. And a lot of times they'll look at a pastor and think, man, he only works one hour a week. That's got to be the greatest job on the face of the earth. I'll trade spots with you for an hour, right? The sermon doesn't just prepare itself. Some guys may get theirs online. I don't get mine online. It takes hours of study, hours of prayer as you're thinking through this. And that's just, I mean, the sermon this week was was on the back burner more than it's ever been since I've been the pastor here because there's been so many other things that's occupied my time this week. And so you're trying to fit all of this in. And so the work of the ministry is hard work. 
those who teach small groups here. It doesn't matter if it's nursery to children's to students to adults. You've got your own jobs. You've got your own lives. And you can't, most of you hopefully, don't wait till Saturday night to start looking at your small group lesson. If you do, there's something wrong with that. So you're starting early in the week, Monday morning, getting up, reading your lesson, praying, preparing your own heart, asking the Lord to speak to you. And so the, 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 word of the, the Lord is building the message in you so that you can share it with those in your small groups. The work is hard work. Just like Nehemiah. Rebuilding the wall was hard work. They laid the stone. They raised the timbers. They mixed the mortar. If you've ever poured a foundation, if you've ever laid block or laid brick, you know that it's backbreaking. You know that it's hard work. In much the same way, the, work, the good work of God in the church is backbreaking work. It's inconvenient work. Sometimes it means you give money to the single mom who just lost your job. Sometimes the work of the gospel means that you're simply making dinner for a family who just had a baby. Sometimes it means you're praying long hours for a marriage because someone in the church's marriage is on the rocks. Sometimes it means you're studying and preparing weekly to teach in your small group. You know, Sunday's always coming. It never stops. It's like clockwork. It always comes. Sometimes it means you're sweating in the kitchen to get lunch ready for the family who just buried their dad. Many of our folks did that this past week. Sometimes the work of the gospel means that you're meeting over coffee to share the, the love of Jesus with a person whose child is in your child's fourth grade class. And so you've built a relationship and so you're trying to, to leverage this relationship for gospel implications. And so this good work of God is a hard Work. And that moves us to a fourth point, and that is the good work of God is selfless work. It's selfless work. Going back to chapter 3, verse 1, we see that this, the fact that this list should start at the sheep gate is re- remarkably symbolic. It's saying put God first. It's saying put others second. It's saying put yourself last. See, the good work of rebuilding the walls and the gates required the Jews to sacrifice. And they sacrificed their time. They sacrificed their energy. They sacrificed their resources. It cost them a lot to restore the city. The work even jeopardized their own security, as we've alluded to in chapter 4. We'll see that they will put a sword on their, on their side. and they, Some will serve with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Others will be stationed as security guards. None of this mattered. None of their sacrifice mattered because they understood what they were doing. And so volunteers came from Jericho, Tekoa, Gibeon, Mizpah, Zenoa, Beth Hakarim, Beth Zur, Keilah, and Jerusalem. People from all over the region gave themselves to the good work of God. They selflessly served the Lord and served one another. And today we do the same thing. We selflessly serve the Lord and one another in the church. For example, I mean, our precious preschool leaders that serve, some are serving even right now downstairs. Some will serve later in the next hour. But they are giving themselves in service to our kids. What are they doing down there? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're changing dirty diapers, wiping snotty noses, and building the Word of God into our kids. I don't like doing two of those things. I got a child down there, so I know all about dirty diapers, and I, I've never, never, never been able to stand green snot hanging out of a child's nose. Uh, I, I, dis- I detest it enough to walk over with a napkin and wipe your kids' 
knows if I have to, just because I don't want to look at it. But that's what they're doing. Are they doing it because they love to wipe or change diapers and wipe noses? No, they're doing it because they love children. They, they're doing it because they love our church. They're doing it because ultimately they love Jesus. And that's why they're serving, giving themselves over to something that most of the time does not have any rewards other than a pat on the back. Maybe a dinner once a year, but there's no reward or recognition for them. They're behind the scenes, but they play one of the most crucial roles in the life of our church. It's a selfless job. Fifth principle or truth I want you to see about good work is this. The good work of God is refused by some. The good work of God is refused by some. Out of all the things that is, all the names mentioned in chapter 3, verse 5 has to be very troublesome. Look at chapter 3, verse 5 with me. <clears throat> Nehemiah says, and next to them, that is next to Zadok, next to Zadok was the Tekoites who repaired and but their nobles, Nehemiah says, would not stoop to serve the Lord, their God. The nobles of Tekoa would not stoop to serve the Lord. Sam Ewing, I saw this quote this week as I was studying and preparing, made this statement about hard work. He says, hard work spotlights the character of people. Listen to this. Hard work spotlights the character of people. Some turn up their sleeves. Some turn up their noses. Some don't turn up at all. That's what's going on here. Some saw the call. They heard the, the, the need. They saw the need. They caught the vision, and they're responding by rolling up their sleeves. Elisha, the high priest, and his priestly brothers are rolling up their sleeves. I mean, they're preachers. They got soft hands, right? They don't know anything about hard labor, but they're going out there, and they're giving it their best. They're listening to the professionals who are saying, yeah, take this brick and put it there, put the mortar down, and build this wall, repair this gate. They're doing what they need to do. They're rolling up their sleeves. Those nobles from Tekoa, they didn't show up at all. Nehemiah here in this list includes workers from the, all of these different regions who are serving, especially these men of Tekoa. But these nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. They were well aware of the need, but they resolutely refused to help. See, they wouldn't dirty their hands with the work. The phrase that Nehemiah uses here uh, that's translated in the ESV would not stoop suggest it was pride rather than laziness that led them to this decision. You see, the nobles weren't lazy. They didn't look at it and say, you know what, i got better things to do. I'd rather go play Xbox. They're not saying that. They're saying, I'm not going to stoop to something that's beneath me. It was pride. It was arrogance that led them to refuse to work. Today, there are many who refuse to participate in the good work of the church and they're doing it because they are lazy, right? They're, they're, in every church I've ever been a part of, whether it was a, a member growing up, whether it was on staff, whether it was the senior pastor, there's always been a group of people who are simply lazy. And the reason they don't serve, the reason they don't participate in the good work of God is because they're lazy. They don't want to do it. They're lazy. They would rather roll over and allow someone else to do it than pick up the trial and go to work. Rather than using their giftedness to do what God's gifted them, what God is calling them to do. They don't serve because they're lazy. That's not the nobles in verse 5. They're arrogant. They're proud. They don't serve because they just don't want to. It's beneath them. It's beneath them. But the truth is there's no work 
that's beneath any of us. The Lord Jesus himself, the King of kings, the one who we said earlier that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is King of kings to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus took his outer garments off, put on a towel, knelt down and began to wash the feet of his nasty disciples. Or I guess the feet of, the nasty feet of his disciples. I don't know if his disciples were nasty, but his feet, their feet were definitely nasty. We learn in the Word of God that none of the work is beneath us. But that doesn't mean you should do every job, right? It doesn't mean that because all the work is a good work and, and, and all of us should be able to do all of the work because it's not beneath any of us, that doesn't mean that every single person should do every single thing in the church, right? So it doesn't mean that the pastor should do it all because we've just established Nehemiah could not rebuild the wall by himself. He needed everybody pulling their part, doing their part, doing their individual task, and all of that accumulated into or culminated into the wall being rebuilt. So we learn from the apostles and their response in Acts chapter 6 to the physical needs of those Hellenistic widows, those Greek-speaking Jewish widows, we learned from their response that the work that needed to be done in their lives was not beneath them, but it was simply a work that they didn't need to do. So the response was, go and select seven spirit-filled, godly, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing men and appoint them to meet this need. And we will continue to devote ourselves to the preaching of the Word of God and to prayer. So none of the work is beneath any of us, but we, don't, we need to make sure that we're doing exactly what we are called to do. And so God calls some to serve in the nursery. God calls some to serve in the parking ministry. God calls some to, to be small group leaders and teachers of the Word of God. So God calls others to be elders in our church. None of the work is beneath any of us, but all of the work is individualized for specific people. But for these Tekoite nobles, they refuse to work because of their pride See, they didn't have time, or they thought the work was beneath them. Their excuses are the same excuses people give today. And ultimately, they focused on themselves rather than putting the focus on others and bettering other people. Let me give you a sixth principle, and we'll land the plane. The good work of God is recognized and rewarded. The list of builders and the work they completed makes up the whole chapter of chapter 3. And it really serves as a memoir of those who did the work to restore the city and to remove its shame. Chapter 3 here is presented as an overview of the work. The actual chronology will pick back up in chapter 4. That's where we'll see all these things chronologically laid out. But here in chapter 3, Nehemiah gives us this detailed list, this overview of what took place during these 52 days. And so this list here informs us that God recognizes and he remembers what we do in life. God recognizes, he sees it, and he will reward it. It's similar to Jesus' address to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. You remember those. John is on the island of Patmos. He has this vision. Jesus is there speaking, and he speaks to these seven different churches. And let me just share some excerpts from what Jesus says. He says to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 2, verse 2, I know your works. He said to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation. To the church in Pergamum, I see, he said, I know where you dwell. To the churches in Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, Jesus again said, I know your works. 
So there's no doubt that nothing escapes the eyes of God. He sees your service. He recognizes how faithfully, he recognizes and sees how selflessly you serve him and others. There's also no doubt that God rewards those who serve him. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is saying, I'm coming to the end of my life, the end of my ministry. I've done everything that the Lord has called me to do. And I know that there's a reward waiting for me in glory. Not just for me, all who love the Lord Jesus and serve him. There's a reward. You see, God will reward our faithful service in heaven one day, but we don't have to wait till then to receive some of that reward. The Lord gives us a sliver of the reward on this side of heaven. So what does that reward look like? I, I'm, let me give it to you in two parts. We're going back to the Jews here. For the Jews rebuilding the walls there in Jerusalem, one of their rewards was the recognition that they were building something which they could dedicate to the glory of God. They were building something that they could say, this is for the glory of Almighty God. And another great reward came from working together harmoniously and leaving something behind which could outlive their days. The, see, the fact that they were leaving a legacy was a great reward. And it's, it's true of us today. When we serve others, when we build the Word of God into people, when we create ministries that bless we feel a sense of pride. We feel a sense of accomplishment because it brings glory to God. When we do great things for the Lord today through his church, we're not building our kingdom. When we get our eyes focused on what we're doing in our name and our glory, that's where it goes awry. But when we're doing this for the glory of God, it brings a sense of pride and a sense of worth and a sense of value, knowing that we have done something not for our sake but for his sake. And that's a reward. Hard work is a blessing in and of itself. I mean, I, I'm kind of chomping at the bits to be able to mow my lawn. I mean, it's grown a little bit. But one of the things I love about mowing my lawn is I can look back and say, man, look at that. There's lines in that lawn. There's something that I've accomplished today. And that's a reward, all for the glory of God. It also gives us joy because what we've done will last long after we are gone. Those feelings of accomplishment are good gifts from God. See, when we participate in the work of the ministry, when we participate in this common goal or purpose for the church, we understand that we're doing something great for God's glory, and we understand that we're doing something that's going to outlast us. It's not about me and my generation. It's about my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. It's about the community generations of, in, in this community who will come beyond us. That's what we're rewarded with, knowing that we are leaving a legacy, a spiritual heritage that will be a benefit and a blessing to generation after generation after generation. So today the job before us is not to build a wall. We don't live in Jerusalem and we don't need a, a wall. Our job is to help build God's eternal kingdom throughout the world. It's not about rebuilding Solomon's temple, but it's about investing in individual lives that can become spiritual temples inhabited by the Spirit of God. And so there's work for all of us to do, good work for all of us. There's a well-known description of football that states something like this. It's 22 men who desperately need a rest being watched by millions of people who desperately need exercise. Does that fit any of y'all? That's what football is. 
22 men on a field who desperately need to take a rest, being watched by millions upon millions of people who desperately need exercise. Unfortunately, church life can oftentimes be just like that. Some people will choose to sit and watch others. They'll watch others do the building, just as some refuse to participate in Nehemiah's project. See, they simply watch, and sometimes they criticize those who serve. The story of the wall being rebuilt here reminds us that we need to pick up the trowel, and we need to join with men and women and boys and girls in our church, in our community, from all around the globe, and get to the work of building the kingdom of God in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. The work is a good work. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning. for Jesus Christ. Lord, if it wasn't for Jesus, we would have no work to talk about. So we thank you first and foremost for a Savior that this morning we have sang about. He is a risen Savior. He has been resurrected from the dead. He has conquered hell and the grave. 